The History Channel Original Podcast. History This Week, July 8th, 1843. I'm Sally Helm. Massachusetts, a hillside overlooking the Nashua Valley. Woods, fields, a view of the mountains. There's a house and a tumble-down barn and a couple of apple trees. It may not sound like much, but two men have looked at this piece of land and said, this will be our paradise. Bronson Alcott, an educator, and Charles Lane, an editor, are on a mission. They want to live by the ideals of transcendentalism, That movement is surging at this moment in the United States, and it holds that nature has a central role to play in our spiritual development. The transcendentalists want to live close to the land so that they can feel more fully alive. So, Alcott and Lane have brought their families out here to create a rural commune. And they've given the place a name, Despite the fact that there are only those couple of apple trees, they're calling it Fruitlands. And now, on this summer day, the founding father of Transcendentalism drops by for a visit. He's Ralph Waldo Emerson, and he likes what he sees. Later, he'll write, the sun and the evening sky do not look calmer than Alcott and his family at Fruitlands. But... Emerson also sounds a note of caution. They look well in July, he writes. We will see them in December. And sure enough, come winter, things will not be so calm on this bucolic hillside. Bronson Alcott and Charles Lane will be at each other's throats. Today, transcendentalists in trouble. Why did a group of idealists think they could succeed where so many others had failed by creating a utopia on Earth? And what can we learn from their attempt? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The writer Richard Francis first heard about the Fruitlands community as a mystery. He was studying the ways that Americans have thought over time about utopia. What would it look like? So when he heard about a utopia started by Bronson Alcott, he was intrigued. Partly because Alcott had kept diaries. A lot of diaries. Bronson Alcott was one of the biggest 
I mean, in the most literal sense, diarists of the 19th century. There's volume after volume after volume of his diaries in uh, Harvard University Library. But the volumes that concern the Fruitlands experiment are missing. So he went looking for them. What could have happened? Did Alcott destroy them out of shame? Did one of his enemies have them burned? No. The real story is classic Bronson. He was going on a short trip. He'd brought his diaries with him in a trunk. And somehow, he lost them. He got on a ferry, and they didn't get on with him. Francis says that's what this guy was like. He was legendarily unpractical. Um, You know, constantly broke, never paid any of his bills. Um, Was a dreamer, as Emerson called him. But a dreamer who was also kind of a genius. He captivated those who heard him speak. Alcott was a legendary talker. Once he's in the zone, he's extremely hypnotic. Everybody testifies to this, um, that he kind of completely grips your attention. So, Francis set out to understand the Fruitlands experiment. What was Bronson Alcott thinking when he set up that utopia on a hillside? Francis, of course, could not consult the diaries, but he could still get a very good picture of the man. Alcott was an educator, and soon before he started on the path to Fruitlands, he had started a different utopian project, a school, one that used unusual methods for the time what you might call Socratic teaching, whereby he drags information from children rather than pushes it into children. Word of his innovative schoolhouse starts to spread. It developed a huge reputation. There were three books written about the school, um, records of, of the classes and so forth. But it doesn't last long. It failed for basically two reasons. One, People heard there had been a classroom discussion about where babies come from, and they disapproved. The other... Was that he had a black child in the school, Mm. a little black girl who he absolutely refused to remove from the class, quite to his credit, despite the parents' disapproval. The school closes. For Alcott, it is a blow. Alcott is terribly upset by the failure of his school. And it leaves him broke, which, to be fair, is pretty much his normal state. He's also extremely irritating. For one thing, he never pays his way at all, ever. I mean, he just has no conscience at all about his debts. But the hapless Alcott has always been buoyed by the strength of his friendships. Because while he is this broke, constantly floundering teacher... He is also a highly respected intellectual who has the ear of one of the top thinkers of the day, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Emerson and Alcott are both transcendentalists. That means they downplay organized religion and look instead to the spirit of nature that courses through all things, human beings included. Alcott, at lectures, speaks of the way that people need to protect the Earth, which is threatened by the Industrial Revolution. Factories on former meadows, mills dumping chemicals into streams. Alcott has admirers. 
including some all the way in England. And Emerson tells the discouraged Bronson, you should get away for a while. Go talk philosophy with these people who think you're so smart. I'll pay for you to go there. And, you know, you can sort of recuperate there and enjoy the uh, praise and the admiration of these people. And so that's how he ends up going to London. And in London, Bronson Alcott meets a man who, like him, is itching to take on a grand transcendentalist project. Charles Lane. He's a writer and a thinker like Alcott, but unlike Alcott... He had his kind of head screwed on. He was a very practical and pragmatic person. Charles Lane was formidable, even intimidating. And he was drawn to Alcott's vision. They both saw something they needed in the other. One thing Alcott needs is cash. Charles Lane can help with that. And Lane, he needs a fresh start in life. He's had a failed marriage. He's looking to start over with his 10-year-old son. So Alcott and Lane start making plans. They want to establish a transcendental utopia back in Massachusetts. Bronson Alcott, Charles Lane, and his son William arrived in New England from England in October 1842. They end up at Bronson's house in Concord, where he lives with his wife Abigail and their four daughters. One of those daughters is nine-year-old Louisa, who will grow up to write one of the most famous American novels of all time, Little Women. They all squash themselves into this little cramped cottage in Concord. Where Bronson and Charles start formulating their ideal community. They want to resist industrialization with all its pollution. And they also want to show others, by example, how to live a more fulfilling life on the land. The goal being to create perfected molecular society, which could then reproduce itself. If enough people follow their example, maybe the world could be saved. But first, they have to set this place up, figure out the logistics. They know they'll need space for nine people. Charles Lane and his son Henry, Bronson's family of six, plus one fellow transcendentalist from London who's tagged along. It's got two families well, and a third member welded together. So it's kind of a community as well as a family. And I think this is the heart of all the problems that the community had. They didn't know which they were going for. But in the spring of 1843, they find a patch of countryside that seems perfect. Forests on rolling hills, mountain views. Just the place to do what transcendentalists do, contemplate nature and become better for it. After seeing the land, Abigail Alcott writes in her journal, one is transported from his littleness and the soul expands in such a region of sights and sounds. To be a little more specific, this is 90 acres of land plus a dilapidated farmhouse, a pretty small one. As Emerson put it, they have nearly 100 acres of land which they do not need and no house which they do need. (laughs) The idea was to be self-sufficient. You don't need 90 acres to be self-sufficient. 
And also, what they really wanted was an orchard. Yeah, I mean, fruit lands, I guess that's what they're saying. They wanted to be a land of fruit. Well, that's why they they called it that. It had no fruit. There are at least three or four trees, and there's the house, and the land is beautiful. So they buy the property for $1,800. Charles Lane puts up most of it, $1,500, and they'll pay the rest off in monthly installments. Abigail Alcott convinces her brother to be their guarantor. On June 1st, the members of Fruitlands arrive at their new home. And Bronson and Charles say there are some rules. Rules we have made with the goal of helping all of us to perfect ourselves in body and mind. The rules include no hot showers. Someone believes that they dull one's cheerfulness and a strict diet. They were vegans, a century before the word was even coined. They only wanted to eat fresh foods. Those felt the most alive. So raw fruit and some vegetables if they grow upward toward heaven. So like no carrots because those grow down into the ground. The community also doesn't use manure because it's low and unclean. They were dressing in linen because they wouldn't wear wool and they wouldn't wear leather uh, because of animal products. A lot of these rules are for the body. But there are rules for the mind, too. They're supposed to be discussing high-minded topics, no gossiping or complaining. Oh, and there is one more thing about the body and how it should be disciplined. There was a kind of strong tendency towards um, celibacy advocated by Lane. No sex. Lane believes that erotic passion blocks access to the higher self. It is a difficult standard. Many would say impossible. And yet, as people hear about the group's ideals, some start to join. There was a motley group assembling there Most of the men had to sleep in the barn because there wasn't enough room in the house. One of these is a local farmer named Joseph Palmer, who once spent 15 months in jail... For wearing a beard. Beards at that time were rare. They signaled nonconformity. Four men attacked Palmer and tried to shave his beard off. So he fought back in self-defense and stabbed two of them in the leg. He was tried and fined. And when he refused to pay, he was thrown in jail. Palmer is an iconoclast. And he doesn't follow all of Fruitland's rules either. Bronson and Charles say that animals aren't supposed to be used on the farm. No beasts of burden. They feel it's unjust. But farmer Joseph Palmer thinks that rule is dumb. So he ignores it. He brings his own animals and uses them to prepare for planting. What do Bronson and Charles do? They momentarily surrender to common sense and let it slide. They needed the land to be plowed, so despite their uh, distaste for animals, their fear of manure, they had animals on their land over that summer. Later, when people ask Abigail, is it true that beasts of burden were not kept on the property? She'll reply, no, just one woman. Fruitlands soon attracts other characters, like Samuel Larned, who claims he'd lived for a year entirely on apples. 
There's also a poet named Anna Page. She strays from veganism by eating a piece of fish at a neighbor's house and is kicked out of Fruitlands. And then there is Samuel Bauer, who firmly believes that people should live in their natural state by discarding their clothes. Not everyone sees the wisdom in this. They managed to persuade him to wear a kind of linen shift and also to confine his romps across the landscape to the nighttime. Soon, stories spread through the villages of a ghostly figure wandering the Nashua Valley. A ghostly figure who appears to be naked. Fruitland's neighbors shrug it off. They basically see the commune as a bunch of harmless misfits. But they are actually more than that. We talked to Catherine Shortliff, the director of engagement at the Fruitlands Museum. She says members did work hard around the farm and they developed themselves intellectually. The reading, learning, conversations, questioning, those were all really central to the philosophies they were seeking to live by. After dinner, they'd talk about big questions, like what is man's greatest vice? What is the importance of community? The children are also expected to give their opinion. Louisa writes in her journal, Father asked us what was God's noblest work. Anna said men, but I said babies. Men are often bad. Babies never are. Summer comes, and the Fruitlanders have found a satisfying routine. The adults do chores by day and study by night. The children split their time between lessons and skipping through the woods, pretending they're horses or fairies. The kids will go out and make flower crowns. Little Anna Alcott writes a description of her sister Lizzie's birthday party. An idyllic scene. They take to the woods, Lane playing the fiddle, everyone singing. Bronson reads some poetry and asks everyone to choose a flower for Lizzie. Anna starts. I said a rose, the emblem of love and purity. Father also chose a rose. Mother said she should give her a forget-me-not or remembrance. Mr. Lane gave her a piece of moss or humility. It is a joyful summer scene. But flowers don't last, and summer doesn't either. When the cold sets in, things will get much harder at Fruitlands. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Fall 1843. The first cold winds are blowing through the Nashua Valley, and many of Fruitland's members have fled, probably to someplace warmer and drier than the drafty farmhouse. But Bronson Alcott and Charles Lane are determined to carry on. Author Richard Francis says that's what any good utopian idealist would do. They've made considerable sacrifices. There's a lot at stake. They've invested their money, they've invested their energy, they've invested their time. But unfortunately, lots of utopian communities have something else in common. Internal strife. At Fruitlands, divisions begin to form. For one, Abigail Alcott is angry at Charles Lane. Mrs. Alcott kind of actually feels that Lane is an interloper and is hogging her husband's attention. She's starting to resent the way Lane pressures Bronson to spend so much of his energy on the collective instead of on his own family. Charles says he doesn't mean any harm. He actually says, I won't be that man from old England to break up a husband and wife in New England. But he also says things like, family love provokes passion and distraction. And Charles is focused on the community. He is worried that it is too small to survive. He said, I came here, I thought it was gonna be part of a big uh, development. And here I am so stuck in this small community. His solution is to evangelize, take his message on the road. He believes that people are sick of crowded cities and numbing factory work. He thinks they'd jump at the chance to join a place like Fruitlands, if only they knew about it. So he and Bronson leave the Nashua Valley and go to New York City to try and find new recruits. Meanwhile, back at the farm, the harvest was due. The weather was about to turn. And there was Mrs. Alcott, stuck with it. Abigail and her four daughters are left to bring in the harvest, a crucial task. At first, they're like, surely the men will be back soon to help get these acres of barley out of the fields. But then a storm rolls in, threatening to destroy the crop, and Bronson and Charles are nowhere to be found. So Abigail and her daughters rush outside, and with the help of Lane's son, William, they bring in as much barley as they can. So we have this perfect contrast. Abigail Alcott getting in a physical harvest of crops. Bronson Alcott and Charles Lane going off for this harvest of people in New York. That second harvest doesn't go well. They set about giving their conversations, uh, which I suppose did attract the kind of admiration that they always attracted, but also a lot of mirth. People think Fruitlands is funny. And even worse, nobody signed up. Charles and Bronson returned to the farm with nothing to show for it. Bronson Alcott was physically ill. Seriously ill. He's also emotionally distraught. Abigail, meanwhile, has some barley that they can eat but no surplus grain to sell. And they'd planned to use the money from those sales to help pay off the land. Now they can't. Catherine Shortliff says, Abigail is the first to realize this is a serious problem. 
She's much more of a realist than her husband. She sees that the Fruitlanders don't have what they need to keep warm or even feed themselves. They are in linen sheaths in a farmhouse in Massachusetts and don't have the proper stores for the winter in terms of food from some crop failures in harvest season. So they were not in a good situation um, and really did need to leave for safety and for survival. Abigail turns to Charles Lane. She tells him, this experiment is over. It's time to pack it in. But Charles is stubborn. He refuses to admit defeat. So Abigail decides that if the men won't end it, she will. She writes to her brother, Samuel. Together, they decide he will stop covering the monthly payments on the land. She says, I do not wish you to put a cent here. Next, she announces to the men, I'm leaving and taking the children. Bronson isn't ready to let go. He spends December trying to carry on as usual. But Lane has grown tired of funding the Alcots, and he sees that the experiment is dissolving. So finally, he leaves. He takes his son to live with another communal group that's more to his liking, the Shakers, who, as a rule, don't have sex. In January, Bronson finally gives in, too. Though it plunges him into despair, he goes days without eating, the Alcots finally leave Fruitlands. Richard Francis says, people are often tempted to laugh at Fruitlands, just as those New Yorkers did when Charles and Bronson tried to get them to join. But this community really was made up of serious intellectuals trying to make a real mark. I think it was a noble enterprise in many ways, very, very flawed, very confused, people who never quite nailed their ideas. And yet, they were playing with ideas that still have a lot of relevance decades later. Things like ecology, animal rights, mindfulness. Francis says, all those ideas floating around today, to his mind, they're not unconnected to Fruitlands. It was not a total failure. In fact, he doesn't even think of it as over. The community of Fruitlands is still alive because it's alive in the vibrations in the ether. They love conversations. They love that notion of an electrical spark. That's where things really have their life, not, not in a, a hard material form, but in a charge or a ripple or a spark. Or in that perfect little molecule that they hoped would replicate and carry their ideas into the future. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweek at history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 212 212- Three five one zero four one zero. Special thanks to our guests, Richard Francis, author of Fruitlands, The Alcott Family and Their Search for Utopia, and Catherine Shortliff, Engagement Manager of the Fruitlands Museum and the Old Manse at the Trustees. This episode was produced by Corinne Wallace with help from Hazel May. 
It was sound designed by Brian Flood and story edited by Jim O'Grady. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. History This Week is also produced by Julia Press, Chloe Weiner, and me, Sally Helm. Our associate producer is Emma Fredericks. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Copyright 2023, a Television Networks, LLC. All rights reserved.